Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, blind spots, hidden truths, and the dangerous illusions that shape our world with Zaya Tong and her new book, The Reality Bubble. Zaya Tong is currently on the board of directors of the World Wildlife Fund International and was formerly the vice chair of WWF Canada. She presented Daily Planet, Discovery Channel's flagship science programme, until its final season in 2018. She also hosted the CBC's Emmy-nominated series Z, PBS's primetime series Wired Science, and worked as a correspondent for Nova Science Now. And Zaya's first book we're going to be talking about today, The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and the Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World. Zaya, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so very much for having me. So tell me, first of all, what the inspiration for this book was. Well, the inspiration is uh, part of it is the fact that I worked with scientists for about 15 years uh, doing science programming and broadcasting. And I started noticing that scientists all see the world in a slightly different way. So if you're talking to a microbiologist, they're zooming into a whole microscopic universe. If you're talking to rocket scientists, they're looking at giant distant things. And talking to these scientists, I, I realized they, they're almost seeing the world in a sort of pixelated manner. And I started wondering what would happen happen if I started to parse those images together? What sort of image of reality would I see then? And so that was the precursor. That was the beginning of looking at the reality bubble. The notion that our meat flesh, you know, our senses, our eyes, our noses, our tastes, all these sorts of things aren't really accurately able to really give us a sense of what reality is, the bigger picture of reality. And the book actually starts with a, a quote by Buckminster Fuller, which talks about the fact that in in the future, in the future that he mentioned, about 99% of the world around us would start to be sensed by technological tools that you and I couldn't perceive uh, with our naked eye, for example. So that's a, a starting entry point to the reality bubble. You start the book with an illustration, a story of a woman called Anne Hodges, whose reality bubble is, shall we say, popped in a rather violent way. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, she was just very casually sitting on a on a couch, lying down, having a nap, basically one day when a uh, lime green cosmic missile uh, streaked through the afternoon sky and bounced off a console radio and landed smack right into her hip. and And if you Google her, you can actually see her. She was hit by a meteorite, and it was the first uh, documented case of a person who had been hit 
by a meteorite. And, um, you know, that was bursting the reality bubble without being able to see that world. Because for most of us, of course, everything that exists beyond our atmosphere, it's almost like it doesn't exist for us because we just live in a world that's human sized. And so that bubble was very literally pierced for Anne Hodges that day when the meteor landed right in her lap. So you just mentioned that, you know, we live in a world that's that's human sized. So many of the things you talk about in this book seem obvious when you spell them out, but there are things that we just sort of ignore every day. And, and this is one of them. So everything around us is basically, you know, calibrated to fit the fact that we are the size we are. But of course, you know, the vast majority of other species are much smaller than we are. Yeah, that's right. In fact, 95% of all animal species are smaller than the human thumb. And, uh, you know, as I was writing the book, I remember looking around because once you get really immersed in a book, you start really thinking in a, a trippy sort of manner. And I just started realizing every single surface that surrounded me, I may have been alone in my study doing some writing, but I was surrounded by microbial life absolutely everywhere. And so, you know, and on on the larger scale, my morning shower thought today is the fact that, of course, I I think you've probably heard this notion that we're made of dead stars. Uh, We are very literally stardust. But then I started thinking, gosh, isn't, isn't it so strange that here we are, we are dead stars, and we require, we have to eat sunlight in order to survive, right? We have to actually eat a star's energy in order to keep going. So it's a very, very strange notion. So this book is a little bit like, like an Alice in Wonderland um, meets the Matrix, <laughs> but with a lot of science inside. And indeed, a bit later on in the book, and we'll, we'll sort of come to this, you talk about this idea that, you know, that human beings are way more connected to, you know, to everything else than we generally care to think. And indeed, you talk about, you know, how human beings, like everything, are, you know, made up ultimately of, of lots and lots of empty space. Some more than others, we might we might tend to think. Um, <laughs> and, and in this part where you're talking about the very small you let's talk about neutrinos for a bit so as well as being born in the center of a a massive supernova explosion once upon a time and as well as eating the sun particles from the sun are just passing through us constantly yeah and that's you know i mean that's another thing that we take for granted because we we can't see it in fact a hundred trillion neutrinos are passing through every surface of your body as we speak this very moment. And so two neutrinos, we're ghost-like. It's like they're just passing through uh, empty sieves. And so, you know, at the particle level, the world is a completely different place. And of course, in my book, I actually go and uh, talk about a secret lab inside of a mountain in Japan, and it's called the Super K Lab, Super Kamiokande. And inside of this mountain, they have this ultra pure water and uh, they sit there and they wait for these neutrinos to come through the bottom of the earth and strike this ultra pure water. Essentially, what they've been able to do to shorten the story, because it goes in a little bit more into detail in the book is they are able to, in this enclosed space with no light reaching the inner sanctum at all, produce a photograph of the sun beaming outside by being able to basically take a neutrino graph of the particles that are coming from the sun. So just miraculous ways of seeing that I was just constantly finding that I was, my jaw was dropping to the floor as I was learning these things. And we're going to come back to some other ways of seeing in a moment, but you know, we've been talking about the very, very small but you know the same could be said about the very very large and people can think about the, you know, the size of the of the universe the size of our galaxy the number of stars out there and it's all 
mind-boggling but you know closer to earth we're terrible when it comes to imagining billion dollar debts and the millions of acres of deforestation that are going on for instance yeah you're exactly right so that's one of the things that i i talk about in the very first chapter is this notion of scale blindness and you point to those exact facts you know every day in the news we hear numbers like 22 trillion dollars in debt or however many billions in the arms trade that are being spent and truly, our eyes do glaze over because we have we, these are unfathomable sort of scales. We barely can register them with our own brains. And I actually give some examples to illustrate what I mean by that by getting people to imagine what a million or 10 million cupcakes looks like in your mind. And it's absolutely impossible at that scale. So human beings are built. We're built to sort of understand uh, a pretty small scale, a human scale, in fact. And once we start breaching that, it starts to become incomprehensible. Comprehensible. And yet today we work at that scale regularly. And so it's really that mismatch between what we're able to perceive and the world that we're dealing with today that is creating some of our problems. Just to illustrate that with perhaps a, you know, a, a more recent and, and topical idea that, you know, there is a there's an idea becoming current in politics about the idea of like, you know, there shouldn't be any billionaires. Obviously, you do talk about economics towards the end of the book as well. But, you know, this idea that and I see this you know taking place on on social media and you know people will reply and say you know what's wrong these people are i mean it's not always the case obviously as well but you know jeff bezos or whatever he's a self-made man so what if he's a billionaire he earned his money and and all of this and again i think often it's just like people cannot comprehend the difference between a person being a billionaire and somebody perhaps having 100 million pounds or something Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, the easiest way to illustrate that is the fact that it takes, if you just started counting today, it would take you 30 years to count to a billion. A billion is uh, an incredibly, incredibly large number. And most people aren't aware, as you say, of the, the difference between a billion and a million. Back to sight then. So, you know, our world is full of amazing sights and millions of colours as as we would imagine but we can only see a tiny percentage of the spectrum of possible colours and there are there are creatures out there that can that can see more yeah that's another you know biological machines are quite fascinating in that way right if you think about for example uh eagles and bees that are able to see in the ultraviolet spectrum they look around and they see flowers in a completely different way than we do with bullseyes for example for landing pads for the bees and then on the other side in the infrared there are snakes and pit vipers that have these special uh pit organs in the front of their faces that enable them to detect heat so one of the studies that I talk about with the snakes is the fact that scientists have actually blindfolded these snakes, and yet they are still able to perfectly strike their prey because they can see in another extraordinary way. And again, this seems like, you know, it seems like an interesting fact, but to me, this idea, and indeed there are, you know, there's there's a certain percentage of, I think you say it's only women who can, who can see slightly more colours than... Um, yeah, the tetrachromats. Yeah, have, see more colours. That, co- that concept is... It's completely unimaginable to me because obviously I don't know what these colours look like. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there are people, you know, who've had uh, their cataracts removed who are able to see in the ultraviolet range, you know. So there, there are many, many different ways of seeing. And really, 
the the point isn't just those fun facts, of course. I, I mean, I, I started, I, I include so many of them because A, I find so many of them wondrous, but they actually serve a bigger point, right? Because I'm just trying to elucidate for people that they can't see quite as clearly as they think they can. And, you know, setting that stage, really just the biological blind spots, of course, leads into a whole bunch of other different blind spots that the book gets, gets into as well. Yeah, and in the second part, I, w- I want to talk about the societal blind spots that's where we're going but uh, just just i want a couple of other other stories about these sort of like you know biological um individual blind spots before we do first of all is again just going back to the idea of you know very big everybody's seen sci-fi movies where there are like giant ants or you know the the amazing giant amazing woman or whatever that one's called 50 foot the amazing 50 foot woman um we couldn't actually have a 50 foot woman though no because her bones would break (laughs) yeah exactly you can't scale up that way and uh, one of the first people to recognize that was uh was the father of science himself a, a renowned genius galileo who who started thinking about what would happen if you started to scale creatures up in size and really uh, gravity prevents that from happening we don't have large creatures big boned um, mammals of course we have uh, we have in the past people often say well what about dinosaurs and I was just fascinated of course dinosaurs being the ancestors of birds that like birds they have hollow bones they're pneumatic as a species right so it was actually really interesting to to think about how how dinosaurs got around that problem of being big boned they were hollow boned instead before we go in, into the second part i just want to you know finish off with an illustrative story about i mean i guess this just shows that you know we spend our lives thinking that we are the only intelligent species the only species that has wonder and you tell a story in the book about a primatologist that, that experiences something different with a pair of chimpanzees tell us that story so yeah, that's a story of uh, Geza Teleki, and um, he was basically a chimpanzee researcher taking some time off and wanted to go up to the mountain ridges and just take in a sunset one day uh, over the waters, the glimmering waters of Lake Tanganyika. And as he sat there, he suddenly saw two big male chimpanzees approaching from either side of the mountain ridge. And um, the the two chimpanzees actually came in a friendly manner. They came and they were kind of panting and, and clasping hands. And then to his absolute bewilderment, they sat down in front of him and just watched the sunset. <laughs> and, you know, for him, this was a really remarkable moment because it made him really question, you know, I mean, just something like that, that we may not think that other other animals can do something as simple as appreciate beauty. But, of course, I do speak uh, more about that because science is very rigorous in the way it examines consciousness. You know, there, there's different ways to consider what the chimpanzees were actually seeing that day. And I'll leave that to the to the readers to discover more. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Zaya Tong, and we're talking about her new book, The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and the Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World. And Zaya, as we go into the second half then, as, as I said, I want to talk about societal blind spots that we we basically go about our lives every day not really thinking about, you know, a lot of the ways in which, you know, society holds together. And and the first of those I want to talk about that you look at in the book is food, basically food production, um, both things like soil health, um, the ecosystem and sustainability, how the, we talk about the Green Revolution, for instance, but specifically... I'd like you to say something about animal welfare, which is, you know, we don't really think too hard about specifically where our meat comes from. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, one one of the things that really started off this book was an observation that I had. You know, we live in a world where there we can, we're such a, a species that relies so much on our sight and seeing. We have cameras everywhere, of course, except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. And so that is the second part of the book, this, this curious question of how did we become the most powerful species on earth when we don't fundamentally understand how we survive. And one of the main things that we refuse to look at Uh, this is perhaps a sense of willful blindness as well, is where our food comes from. And of course, Paul McCartney famously said that if slaughterhouses had glass walls, everybody would be a vegetarian, right? Because I think that we we all have this sense that something very gruesome is going on. You know, I mean, if you think about the fact that there's 66 billion uh, farmed animals to date, and they disappear yearly, and yet none of us ever see them. I mean, what exactly is happening behind those closed doors? And so I do go behind the scenes. And just to uncover a little bit about what is happening, but not only on the level of perhaps what's just gruesome, uh, which I think People assume that they know uh, what's going on, but I think actually few people do know what's going on. But also on a much smaller level, again, returning in scale and looking at how these animals are produced. How did we get to a place where today um, factory farmed animals outnumber us 15 by one? And that's because we've really hijacked their reproductive cycles, right? We don't let a lot of animals have sex anymore. We make them have sex in our way with in vitro fertilization. And in so doing, we have changed 
the face of the planet because we produced so many animals in order to slaughter so many animals. And that has some very serious repercussions today when you're looking at the number of wild animals left on the planet being a mere, you know, in terms of uh, vertebrate biomass, being a mere three to four percent. And again, the other thing that we, you know, that we don't often think of is the fact that a lot of farmland that could otherwise be used for you know for producing food for ourselves obviously needs to be used to produce food for all of these billions of animals yeah exactly and i think in the coming decades from what i understand if if we didn't consume the amount of meat that we did because of course the meat eating animals rely on the grain uh and the soy etc we would we would spare about 75% more uh farmland for ourselves so certainly a reduction in meat is something that a lot of people are becoming a lot more aware of because we're starting to see that link between animal agriculture and climate change you know i've i've been looking at these really shocking images of what's going on in in australia I know it's stunning for everybody to see too, you know, a billion animals is the most recent uh, WWF estimate. And and just seeing these scorched uh, landscapes, blood red skies, corpses of animals everywhere. But most people can't actually make that link between what that has to do with animal agriculture in the very first place. Let's move on to energy then. You mentioned this is the, the, the sort of next chapter of this section of the book. And we don't really pay that much to attention to how electricity gets to that plug socket on our wall. No, yeah. I mean, I was just really fascinated to learn a lot more about uh, electricity and learning more about the grid. And uh, so I I get into a story about actually (laughs) some grid operators who who in England, um, I don't know if you know about the story of TV pickup. You will, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. When everybody gets to the end of EastEnders, our most popular uh, TV show here, yeah, the the electricity needs to be uh, needs to be boosted exactly because everybody in england likes to get up for a cuppa a cup of tea right and when they do that and everybody gets up at the same time to turn on their kettles all of a sudden this creates a huge surge in electricity and so the folks at the grid actually have to be watching along and watching eastenders or watching the british bake-off for that moment when everybody gets up to make a cup of tea so that they can ensure that there is enough electricity they can turn on a system that essentially essentially is like an artificial waterfall that pours that water down to spin those turbines. And of course, the fact that electricity is fresh made, that was something like it's fresher than orange juice. The minute you are turning on that switch, you know, that coal is like burning as embers the moment you start, you know, using it up or the same with uh, electricity that comes from hydroelectric dams. So once you just start delving in, that was a thing I started realizing there was just so much fascinating stuff going on beyond the reach of my eyes. Yeah, this this is an interesting. I, I was not aware of the, of the freshness of electricity. I think everybody <laughs> presumes that there is some sort of battery type thing out there somewhere storing electricity until it's needed, but that that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, batteries are the things that we're just starting to work on now, and batteries are the things that are going to propel us into a renewable energy future, and uh, that's what we've been waiting for. But up until then, it's been it's been fresh squeezed stuff, Neil. <laughs> And in terms of fuel, I mean, I think, you know, especially nowadays where we talk about renewable energy versus fossil fuels, it's probably easy for people to think that we're talking about fossil fuels in this sort of that term comes from it being like, you know, old, uh, the old way of doing things like a sort of legacy type fuel rather than literally that it's made out of fossils. 
Yeah, that was another thing that I was just fascinated by. And in interviewing people for the last 15 years on various TV shows, I've had a chance to speak to some of the smartest people in the world, lots of scientists, researchers. But what I started realizing as I started asking people when I started writing this book is that 95% of people don't know what oil is. You know, and that's that's pretty shocking to me um, that, you know, you can ask all these highly intelligent people and, and they have no clue. They know that it runs the global economy. They know that it's this black stuff. But most of them don't realize that this is ancient dead stuff. Right. You know, and a thousand tons of it goes into, you know, every tank of gas and about three tablespoons is the equivalent of eight hours of manual labor. And it's this energy, it's because it is such powerful ancient energy. It actually, it's a prehistoric world that, that fuels our present one in many ways. So the next chapter in, in that part, as you mentioned, is is about waste. And you talk about all kinds of waste, both obviously human waste, um, animal waste as well, um, but obviously garbage. And I guess most specifically, most urgently now, we're talking about plastics. Yes, uh, certainly plastics are something I think we all need to contend with. But it's interesting, right? Well, plastics is, is in fact, I'm wondering if it's a good news story or not a good news story. I feel like I feel like we're actually making some headway finally when it comes to plastics. This isn't necessarily what I talk about in my book, but you know, just in the news a little while ago, I saw that people in Australia are actually taking plastic and garbage and actually being able to uh, transform it to its chemical elements to recreate it as oil and gas again, as fuel, which is really quite wonderful. And there are a whole, whole different ways that people are dealing with plastic. But um, yeah, plastic is a strange thing, right? Because, you know, 70 years ago, it just simply wasn't around. <laughs> you know, nobody had this stuff. And now it's absolutely ubiquitous. You'd be, you'd be hard pressed to look around your surroundings right now and not see parts of objects everywhere around you that are made with plastic. This substance that was originally built because it was, it was created to create objects that are so durable. And yet today we've flipped the script entirely. And, and, you know, it's an embarrassment when you think about the fact that you can use something like a, a little plastic bag for a sandwich just one time and this stuff is going to last for thousands and thousands of years. And of course, this plastic is entering our food system and our food chain as well. And, um, you know, slowly today, it seems like we are really eating and drinking plastic. The last part of the book, you look at what you describe as intergenerational blind spots, things, you know, ideas, traditions that we've basically just taken on because they were the way things are done and we sort of carry on and often these things sort of trap us. And there's a really fantastic chapter about time, the idea of time being, a, you know, an invented concept, the, time, the idea of keeping time being something that obviously we invented. Initially, I guess, you know, when the real sort of like industrialization of time was when we started working with the Industrial Revolution in in factories and it was like, a, you know, a way to make everything run more smoothly. And of course, it's something that we are fundamentally trapped in. Yeah, and we tend to forget that it's our own human invention and how flexible these notions can be, right? I mean, just very recently, I was pleased to see that in Japan, they're starting to test out, I think it was actually Microsoft that's starting to test out something like a four-day work week. And they're starting to realize that people have so much more productivity, you know, uh, when you actually give them more time and space to breathe. But there have been many fights over the years and eras, everything from the hay the, the Haymarket riots, you know, where people used to work 60 hours a week and they had to fight to not work during the weekends to give us our present day work weeks. 
to just even the very notion of time being, you know, eight o'clock, which actually uh, originally was of the clock. And, you know, because we don't say of the clock, we forget this notion that the clock is an invented time altogether. And um, I don't want to give away too much, of course, but as you know, in this chapter, it, it really breaks time apart and starts to begin to show us what the ramifications are for how we've structured time and how how it's a really, really destructive force at the end of the day. Well, of course, you mentioned there that, you know, the Haymarket riots, the idea of, you know, sort of rioting for, you know, better conditions. But indeed, people did riot when time zones and whatever were attempted to be foisted upon them as well. Absolutely. In India, and I write about that in the book as well. Yeah, they absolutely fought back (laughs) hand and fist against the notion of having this structured time. So time actually had to be really beaten into us. We didn't we didn't take to it too easily. But again, this notion that time is flexible, a lot of this really this book is really about thinking about the way in which we think in different ways to realize that the trap largely is one that we have set ourselves. So you have a chapter about following on from the time about, you know, ideas of measurement, about, you know, borders and cartography and how things like these are obviously, you know, human constructions as well. And and later on, as, as I mentioned earlier, you go on to talk about the financial system, you know, the invention of money, capitalism. Um, but I want to finish off talking about the idea of GPS, this invisible network of satellites that are above us, because, you know, GPS, Google Maps is something that has really transformed my life seemingly for the better. I have no idea how it works. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, it's incredible, right? Because in the modern day, we have these networks of satellites. Sometimes you'll be looking up at night and you'll see what looks like a shooting star and you'll soon realize, of course, this is a satellite. And we have all these satellites for so many different purposes. And a lot of them are important for being able to navigate the way in which we do today. And in the book, I actually talk about how important Einstein's general and special theories of relativity were to the precision in the way our satellites work. Otherwise, they would, if we didn't actually factor in for the way Einstein perceived time and space, satellites would be off by kilometers every single day. So it's very, very precise. And, um, you know, it's just really fascinating for me because these days, I think there's a lot of joking, in fact, about uh, Trump and, and this sort of um, space army or space force, whatever he's he's starting to create. But I think people actually, they make fun of it because it's got a silly name, but they don't actually realize how dangerous or, or how much is at stake, in essence. Because one of the things that I do write about is the power to blind another nation's eyes. Our satellites are, of course, not just used for our navigation. They're used to be able to see, for reconnaissance, all those sorts of things. And so space wars or, or the ability, and, and it has been demonstrated that you can destroy other satellites in space, can actually cripple other nations. So, so this is another way of thinking about um, another big blind spot, the way in which our everyday civilization is being run out in space and we're we're barely even aware of it and indeed i mean to finish off you know this is a book that's you know full of interesting stories um great illustrations about these various blind spots and you know it would be sort of customary to finish an interview like this with a sort of a glib question about you know how can we 
do better? How can we see these blind spots more easily? But of course, these are questions that are basically vital for for the survival of humanity in the coming years. Fundamentally, yes. I mean, I think that's one of the big things for me is uh, the big realization that I've had is that the apocalypse that we're all facing today, it's been a it's been a, a difficult beast to fight because it's largely been invisible. And uh, really, scientists have provided us with other ways to see I had an epilogue at this book for this book that was all solutions. And my editor, it's the only big cut that he made in my book. He cut the whole epilogue on solutions. And some people have been like, why? Why did you do that? And he he's right. You know, he's like, this is a book about seeing the world in a new way. Let's just keep it focused on how to see. There are millions of solutions out there. We do not lack solutions. Solutions, a lack of solutions is not the current problem that we face. The problem that we face is that we don't know how to see the world clearly. So, uh, This is really my hope uh, that people have a chance to burst the reality bubble before the bigger one bursts (laughs) itself. So I've been talking to Zaya Tong. We've been talking about her new book, The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths and the Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World, which is out now in the UK from Canongate. Zaya, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.